Hey, can I be uh, real with you guys for a minute? The teachers in this room will understand this, too. Um, I say this with a smile on my face. When, whenever you teach or preach, you, you develop certain folks that you uh, like looking at while you're preaching because they look engaged and stuff. And then sometimes there's other folks. And only the Lord knows what's going on in each heart. But preachers like that when, when people are diving into the text with them and, and another thing we like that happened this week a couple times is some people sent in some feedback of what God was doing in their lives as they read the book of Lamentations. That excites me far more than anything that happens on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching. When people are getting into the word, I just want to share a couple. Last week we preached about groaning Oh, and P.S. on that thing. Don't ask me which face yours is. I'm going to plead the fifth on everybody, okay? So <laughs> listen to what I heard about someone who dived into the book of Lamentations. They said, I've read it many times, but I have never studied it before. I, after reading it, I think it's entirely relevant to the times we're living in now. I also thank you for the lesson on groaning. I sometimes feel that to be a good witness, I must not show concern about the state of things in our world. Lamentations reminds us there's a way to remain a good witness, but groan in a godly way. Amen. She got it. We mailed back and said, you know what, sister? We groan with you. We groan with hope, but we're groaning (laughs) right with you in in this fallen world. Groaning was the theme last week that we live in a fallen world. And even as believers, there are times where we groan in this fallen world. The theme of chapter 2 this morning is a different one. And it's not one that people sign up for. If we were to take surveys of what top 10 things would you like to talk about on Sunday morning, this one would not be on there. It is God's discipline in the lives of his children. We try not to do things based on surveys here. We try to do things based on the whole counsel of God's word, part of which is the book of Lamentations. So we're going to talk about God's discipline this morning in the lives of his children. Last Sunday, even before we got to this message, someone else was was reading the book of Lamentations and, and they sent in a text that said this, God has revealed to me that it is our sin and rebellion that separates us from him. Such a fitting lead-in as we talk about God's discipline this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. We're going to join the prophet Jeremiah once again in his angst and, and pain over the destruction of Jerusalem and his hope. His hope for the future. God's discipline, chapter 2, verse 1. As we go through these verses, I want to ask you a question. When we look at the destruction of Jerusalem, who is it that is doing the destroying in these verses? Who's the actor? Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob 
In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Who is the actor when it came to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem? Who? The Lord. And you can carry on through the, the chapter and see that. In fact, verse 17 tells us he had promised this if they rebelled against him persistently and pursued their idols in their disobedience. Verse 17, as the Lord has done what he purposed, he has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. So it's clear it was the Lord who destroyed Jerusalem. As we talk about this idea of God in discipline for sin, I want to ask the why question. Why discipline for sin? And I want to answer it a couple different ways. The first one is why? Because of who God is. That's number one, because of who he is. You remember when the prophet Isaiah was called to ministry and he had this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And there were seraphim flying and, and shouting something. Do you remember what it was they were shouting? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now it's been asked by some, why doesn't the Hebrew there just say very holy? And R.C. Sproul, one of my all-time favorite teachers who's with the Lord now, says because Hebrew doesn't have adjectives like very. If they want to emphasize how, how holy something is, they don't say very or very, very holy. They repeat the word. Holy, holy, holy. He, he brought it to life by using the word pit. In the Old Testament, there are passages that talk about the wicked falling into a pit. Nobody wants to fall into a pit. But there are some passages in the Old Testament Hebrew that talk about the wicked falling into a pit pit. You don't want to fall into a pit. You definitely don't want to fall into a pit pit. That is a bad pit. Because when you repeat the word, it emphasizes the, the severity of the word. So when you repeat holy, not just once, not just twice, but three times, it tells us that our God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy. He is separate from sin. That's part of why. Because of who God is. That's why discipline for sin. But it's also because of His love. The Bible, thankfully, also tells us that God is love. And not the watered-down idea of love that we sometimes hear that, that, that hesitates to speak hard truth that would confront someone we love in their, their path of sin. Biblical love according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, rejoices with the truth. It is the God who knows the other side of the sin coin. Like Charles Swindoll put it, when we look at the destruction in the book of Lamentations, what we are really seeing is the other side of the eat, drink, and be merry coin that is so often pushed in this world. God knows what sin leads to. And he loves us as his children too much to stand by idly and do nothing in our lives. 
I have a friend who, who said we would do so well in our lives if every time we were tempted, if we just pause and say, Lord, help me play this movie out to the end. If, if I do this sin right here, where's this going to take me next week, two weeks from now, a year from now? Because what happens? Often we get very myopic at that moment. We just see the moment. God sees it all, and he loves us too much to stand idly by. That's why discipline. He's holy, and he's loved because of who he is. But it's also, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, because of who you are and because of who I am. I was thinking about God's discipline in our lives. It would make absolutely no sense at all if salvation was only saving us from sin and death and hell, would it? If that's all salvation was, discipline has no place here. We might as well imagine God as our cosmic Santa Claus. He's just saving us from all the bad stuff. But is, it, is that all there is to salvation? No. He is also calling us to something in our lives, to a behavior that matches our identity. And that was not just true for Christians. It, it was also true for Israel. You remember... When God first spoke to Abraham, the, the founder of the nation of Israel, and he told him, through you, I will bless the whole world, right? They had a purpose to, to be a blessing to the world, right? And it goes on after the Exodus. Exodus 19, verse 5, he says to them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You know what a priest does? Yeah, spreads the word. Represents God to people and people to God. They were, they were supposed to be that, that priest to the, to the world around them. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. Over and over in the Old Testament, he says to them, be holy, for I am holy. They were, they were saved for these purposes, right? And I say, let's go to the New Testament. What about believers? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but right now our post is here for the purpose of representing God and his kingdom to all around us. We are ambassadors. We are saved to that purpose. Peter gets even more explicit as to our calling. 1 Peter 2, 8 through 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, not just priests, but royal priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is why we're here. Royal priests to proclaim how excellent our God is in the way we speak and the way we live. My favorite on this theme, what are we called to? Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know the first part. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Thank God. I've seen that in my life. And I believe that plays out in many wonderful ways. But do you know what the, the main good 
that God seeks to work in all of our circumstances is? Look at verse 29. Context. The verse right after. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the ultimate good. He's wanting to make you and I more like Jesus. In, in the way we treat people, the, the way we live, the, the way we speak. So all of a sudden, you say, okay, he's shaping our lives into something. So discipline makes all kind of sense, right? Just like if, if you have children like we do. We have three boys. Is the purpose of having children just to spoil them for 18 years and let them loose? No. It is to train them. Right? If you're a Christian family, first and foremost, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. To help them find those skills that God has put in there and, and help them get educated in such a way that they can live a productive life in this world as an adult. That's the goal, right? So all of a sudden, some discipline along the way towards that end Makes sense. Same in the Christian life. He's making you and I more like Jesus. That's why. Because of who he is and because of who we are. Now, a couple things to remember about our Heavenly Father. If you're in a moment of his discipline right now. Okay? Three things, in fact. The first thing I want you to hold on to is he is a good father. He's a good father who loves us too much to leave us where we're at this morning in our behavior. Okay? Where do I get that? Anybody know? Hebrews chapter 12. You have your Bibles. Look there with me. Hebrews 12, 5. He's encouraging this persecuted church going through the ringer and some of them going through God's discipline as well. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement that addresses you as sons? It's an encouragement. And here it is. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That's one part of it. Don't take it lightly if, if you find yourself there. But the second part's the encouragement. Nor be weary when reproved by him. His purpose in disciplining you is not just to wear you down. And make you weary. He said, don't be weary when reproved by him. Why? Verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. I know in that moment of discipline, if you're like me, it would take an act of faith to say this. But what if we paused and said, Lord, you've convicted me of sin in my life. And I'm going through discipline for it right now. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you love me enough not to leave me here. You, you want to lead me through this and, and out of this? He goes on. And I scrolled up a little bit. Excuse me one second. God is treating you as sons. Verse 7. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In fact, verse 8. He brings out the other side. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So again, you can say, Lord, thank you for confirming my sonship right now, or my daughtership. You love me enough to discipline me. 
He loves you too much to leave us where we're at. Second, his plan in it is good for you. It's good for me. Where do I get this? Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For those earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Now, I look at that phrase, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. If you're a dad or have been a dad had with kids in the home, that as it seemed best to them, I relate to that. This is a process in our home. We have three different boys in, in this whole journey of loving discipline. I'll admit I got a lot to learn. I got a lot to learn. It's one thing that shows me what a frail human being, finite human being I am, partially because every child is so different, right? It's, it's a learning experience. Just one example, and I won't tell you which boy was which because I don't want to put them on the spot, but each boy went through and goes through that spanking season where, where they're learning that way. And boy, the responses are so different among each boy. I remember one boy, after we had a moment where he disobeyed me and he told me I'm the boss, and he said it again, and, and that led to a spanking, and I hugged him. And I said, what did you learn from this? And, and he got it. He said, you're the boss, and God's the boss. I said, all right. That was one response. But, but there was another one when, when it came time for that moment, and, and you go through that loving discipline, and you hug them while they're crying, and then they just want to be alone, and they just want to be up in their bed and cry it out, and it rips your heart out. Like, oh, rips your heart out. Then, then there was another one. Another one, one of his first spankings when I spanked him after we were done, he looked at me and said, I'm going to tell mommy to spank you. <laughs> so all these things keep me humble because I realize I'm very much still learning how to deal with each one of these very unique blessings that God has given us. Love them like crazy. Want to be faithful in the discipline, but boy, I'm learning. The point here is, hey, even if earthly fathers have their children's good in mind as it seemed best to them, think about our heavenly father. It's not as it seems best to him. He knows. It says he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. He knows his will perfectly. He knows you perfectly. He knows me perfectly. He created us. Those discipline is for our good. What is that good? His holiness, verse 11 he goes on, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what he's after in our lives, that peaceful fruit of righteousness when we learn what he's trying to teach us. His plan in it is good. Finally, what do we need to remember about him? He wants you, child of God and Jesus Christ, to be encouraged to be encouraged. Verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He's looking to bring that healing in your behavior 
so you can carry on down the path of his will in your life. If we believe those things, if we believe that God is good, even in our discipline, we, we can sing and pray like Horatio Bonar. I will not read all seven verses. I'll just read one or two here, but listen to this. Verse 1 of something he wrote, he, he said, Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, lead me by thine own hand, choose out the path for me. You can't say that unless you really trust that God loves you. And he's got your good in mind, child of Jesus. So you say, okay, last week we talked about the fact that we all groan in this world, and not all groaning is the direct result of God's discipline on a specific sin in my life. This week we're talking about God's discipline for sin in my life. So how do I know? How do I know if this difficulty I'm going through right now is God's discipline for a specific sin in my life. Well, rather than telling you what to do, I'm going to tell you how not to find out if it's God's discipline for a sin in your life. Okay? And then you can flip it around and do the opposite if you do want to find out. Here's how not to find out if God's disciplining you. Just stay busy. Stay busy. Keep on running. Keep on doing what you're doing right now. Don't, don't slow down to read his word. Don't do that. Don't, don't take time to pray and listen as the Spirit leads you. And whatever you do, don't, don't pray that prayer that David prayed. Lord, search me and know me and show me if there is any offensive way in me. If you don't want to know if it's God's discipline, don't do any of those things. If you do, if you will slow down open his word, pray, and seek him, I promise you he is not playing games with you. In my life, when he has discipline for me, the Holy Spirit has a razor-sharp scalpel that he points on it. Far different from the enemy's attacks of this general cloud of condemnation that I, I, I struggle with. The Holy Spirit says, Scott, you need to go to that person and tell them sorry because you said that. Etc. Not audibly, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay? That's how you know. Slow down. Open the Bible. Pray. Invite Him to search your heart. And if He doesn't show you anything specific, carry on on the right path as far as you know to until He does. Or if He does. What about our response at that moment? 2 Corinthians 7 is really beautiful for this. Many of you know Paul dealt with that church of Corinth a lot over different sins. Sometimes sexual, sometimes these proud super apostles blowing their own horns and stuff. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you get there and he's got these mixed feelings because he's been sending these letters confronting them. And I'm going to paraphrase what he says there. He's, he says, I, I feel kind of bad because you feel bad because I confronted you about your sin? But not really. <laughs> I don't really feel bad because of what it led to in your life. When I confronted you, it led to good things. 2 Corinthians 7.10. This is how we should respond. I'm going to hit you with seven things. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's the first thing. 
If you're aware that God is disciplining you for a sin in your life, repent. What's that mean? It's a change of mind involving action according to God's will. Okay? You change your mind about that action. And with his help, turn away from it, believer. But he goes on. He doesn't stop with repentance. Repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Verse 11, he says, See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. I'm going to put those two words together. They were earnest and eager to get on the right side of this thing, to, to stop doing the wrong in their church and start doing the right. Those words have nothing to do with passive, ho-hum, like, oh, well. You're earnest and eager to get on the right side of this matter. But he goes on. What indignation. Some think that was indignation against the person in their church giving Paul trouble. Some think it was indignation against their own role in the sin. Whatever it was, I want to tell you, there's a time in the believer's life for us to get indignant about the sin that we cherish. When God convicts us, we say, yes, Lord, that needs to go, and I am with you. Please help me boot that out of my life. I don't want it here anymore. And he goes on, what fear or alarm, perhaps at their own passivity or their role in what was going on in their church. We can't be passive about sin in our lives. We should have this alarm when the Holy Spirit touches on it. Okay? What longing? What longing? One commentator I read believed this referred to longing for their relationship with the Apostle Paul that had been hurt by this sin. And I think about relationships and longing and what happens. Sometimes when we get sucked into our own little world of sin, what happens? It's all about me, 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 me. But then the Holy Spirit comes along and He shows us, look, what you are doing is not only about you. It is impacting your family. It is impacting your church. It is impacting your workplace. All of a sudden, you have this longing to rebuild those relationships. Finally, he says, what zeal, what punishment. They, they had this holy zeal to deal with this issue in their church, to punish it and get on the righteous side of God's behavior. I'd encourage you to dive in that a little bit on your own. That's a lot in a couple verses. But that was their response. It's a good word for us. I want to close with a word about wrath. And a word about hope. I want to start with the word about God's wrath. We know John 3.16. A couple verses later, John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is upon all who do not believe and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the biblical teaching. It's another side that you need to hear. Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us in 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Which side of that equation you are on is the single most important question you will ever face in your life. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Is God's satisfaction of His wrath or is His wrath upon you today? Now is the day of salvation. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I want to talk to you about hope. If you've made that decision, as I know many of you have. Word about hope. Back to Lamentations 2. And where I'm starting here, you're going to have to hang with me for a minute. There's hope in the fact that what happened in Lamentations was just as God said it would happen. God is faithful to his word. Okay? And I want to show you something that I I learned last week from a scholar named John Martin. I'm not going to read this whole thing. What you have here is parallels between Lamentations and Deuteronomy. On the left, you have verses from Lamentations. On the right, you have verses from Deuteronomy 28. Centuries before Lamentations, Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And he told the people of Israel, if you persist in your disobedience, this is what is going to happen. John Martin found 15 verses in Deuteronomy 28 that have parallels in the book of Lamentations. I'd encourage you to get them side by side and look at them. I'm just going to show you three. If you have your Bibles, Lamentations 2.20 says, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? That's lamentation. Centuries earlier, listen to what Moses had written at God's leading in Deuteronomy 28.53. If you persist in disobedience, you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Just as the Lord had told them. How horrible. What we see here is a clear picture that our sin does not only affect us. The sin of the people affected their children in a horrid way. 2.21 in Lamentations. Does in the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. Back in Deuteronomy 28.50, God had predicted a nation to judge his people. And he described them this way, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. You could go through Deuteronomy 28 and Lamentations and see 13 more. It was just as God had told them. You say, how in the world do you find hope in that? Well, the same faithful God who keeps his warnings, which we should heed, also keeps his gracious promises 
which we should cling to. And any people in Israel who had an ear for his promises would hearken back to Deuteronomy 30 because Moses went on. Listen to what Moses also told them. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. The same God that kept his warnings would keep his promises as well. Going back to that early promise to Abraham, through you, you will be a blessing to the whole world. Guys, that's, that's a big part of what Christmas is all about. Matthew 1.20, as Joseph betrothed to Mary, pregnant, wrestling with what to do with her, had a visit from an angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Because that manger would lead to a cross, as Isaiah tells us. You think about God's wrath on sin. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some of you know that Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrestled often with his own sinfulness and his desperate need for a savior. I read this week about a dream he had once. It was a dream of, that there was a chalkboard on the wall, and there was an angelic hand writing all of his sins on the chalkboard, and he watched and shuddered in despair as the chalkboard filled up side to side, top to bottom. But then as he continued in his dream, a pierced hand appeared at the top, and as that pierced hand began to move across the board, blood dripped from that hand as his sins were erased. And the verse appeared at the top, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He knew that was his only hope. How many of you know the name Rosalind Goforth? She was a missionary to China. Like Martin Luther, she too, and maybe like you and I, get in those moments where we wrestle with the darkness of our own sin. Could I really be saved? She woke up one night, and she decided to track through the Bible and write down 17 truths about God's forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. And we're blessed to have her list today. If you're a believer in Jesus, I want you to 
enjoy these with me. If you're not yet, perhaps this morning is your morning. Number one, He lays them on His Son, Jesus Christ, our sins. Number two, Christ takes them away. Three, they are removed an immeasurable distance, distance as far as the east is from the west. When they're sought for, they are not found. Number five, the Lord forgives them. Number six, He cleanses them all away by the blood of His Son. Number seven, He cleanses them as white as snow or wool. Number eight, He abundantly pardons them. Number nine, he tramples them underfoot. Number 10, he remembers them no more. Number 11, he casts them behind his back. Number 12, he casts them into the depths of the sea. Number 13, he will not impute or count them to us. He covers them. He blots them out. He blots them out as a thick cloud. He blots out even the proof against us, nailing it to the cross. If you found comfort in those words as I did, we'll have that on our Facebook page and in our email this week. But we would do well when we come face to face with our own sin to do what she did, to turn our eyes to the Savior, the hope of nations. Lord, I pray this morning as we talk about your discipline in the lives of your children that you'd help us strike a biblical balance. Everything we just read about your wrath and, and your condemnation upon us. It is gone, uh, Lord, because of the blood of Jesus if we come to you in faith. And yet we acknowledge the reality of Hebrews 12 that there is still this loving, fatherly discipline. Not a hint of your condemning wrath in it, but your desire that we be more and more like you, more and more like your son your desire for our good. So I pray for any believer in the room this morning, maybe your Holy Spirit's putting his finger on something, help them to follow the example of the church at Corinth and repent and have that same eagerness and earnestness to, to get on the other side of that and, and a, even an indignation against that sin, a zeal to walk with you again. Lord, but a deep assurance that even in that discipline, they are yours. And they are loved. I pray that if you brought anybody in here this morning that is under the, the wrath that you have against sin, that you would draw them to the, the beautiful cross of Jesus Christ where he poured out his blood, that we might be free, that we might find the same freedom that, that Martin Luther expressed in that dream as that chalkboard was, was wiped clean by his blood. The same freedom that Rosalind Goforth felt that night as she went to sleep with those 17 guarantees emblazoned on her heart. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to Israel. Thank you for your faithfulness to believers in Jesus Christ. Thank you you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we give our offering, may it be an act of surrendered, grateful worship to our faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen.